Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. Common Cause North Carolina is a nonpartisan grassroots organization dedicated to upholding the core values of American democracy. We know that together we can build a democracy that's fair, vibrant, and inclusive for all. To learn more, visit commoncause.org backslash NC. In the 1890s, the Mississippi legislature came together. They saw that black folks were starting to get elected to things. And the presiding officer over this constitutional convention literally said, we're here to exclude the Negro. That's what he said in the opening of the convention. And there are little artifacts like that all sprinkled out throughout history. That's the game that they're playing. We have to remember what's interesting about our democracy is that the right to vote isn't actually affirmatively defined in the Constitution. It says what you can't do. 14th, 15th Amendment addressed that, but it doesn't go into who can vote in the terms. We've, we've kicked that can down the road. You And funny. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with renowned opera bass baritone Devon Tynes. Devon's voice has been described by the Los Angeles Times as one of the most powerful of our time, and The New Yorker recently profiled his trailblazing work, praising not only his ability to blend genres from opera to gospel, but also to make social justice a fundamental component of everything he does. Devon is the star and co-creator of The Black Clown, a dramatic opera adapted from a 1931 poem by Langston Hughes. Both the poem and its adaptation are about African-American resilience against a legacy of oppression. Also joining us is data scientist and voting rights activist Todd Hendricks. Todd produces insights that protect and empower minority voters because in his words, black equality cannot be achieved until gerrymandering and voter suppression are addressed. Working with litigators, Todd uses a combination of tools in pursuit of that goal, including Bayesian inference, machine learning, and data visualization. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is the Black Clown, Unmasking Systematic Voter Suppression with Science. Hello, Devon and Todd. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Hey, Matt. So glad that you guys could make it. Devon, I was hoping I could start off by asking you a technical question about opera. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always wanted to know more about the mechanics of what it is to be an opera singer with a deep voice and as such how you're able to project it loud volumes, like with a, a tenor, like a Pavarotti, I get it. You know, you can belt out the high note, but it seems like it's an altogether different set of principles at work. Yeah. I mean, my speaking voice is pretty high. My singing voice is pretty <laughs> low, but kind of goes a full range, but it kind of doesn't matter where your voice lies in terms of range, because what's happening in terms of sound being projected is uh, the singer actually utilizing the natural resonators within their body. And mm. that's something that takes some time to get to know. I mean, you work on this in conservatory, but as your body continues to grow and change, you always feel this out in different ways. And so everybody's body has um, a whole array of, I guess, kind of natural speakers. And the biggest one is your chest to the largest cavity that you have. Um, and the kind of base of the sound can be projected out of there. There's also something called head voice. As opposed to chest voice, there's head voice, and that's kind of using your cranium as the resonator. And then all throughout your nasal passages, there's kind of a whole system of chambers that I continue to find a lot of fun and play with, depending on different genres or different aspects I'm trying to bring forward. You know, you get to know how to play these speakers, like the tweeters and the bass tones wow. in different ways. Um, yeah. That's wild. Is there a history lesson to be had there? Like how, I mean, cause obviously this is opera is pre-amplification. So you've got to come up, 
you've got to find the right frequencies that cut through an orchestra, right? Totally. I mean, I think the history there has to deal with just a a growing engagement of a science of the body. You know, all voice teachers and studios, there's a there's a basis in anatomy that has to be understood because essentially you're playing a musical instrument that you can't see. You know, you're playing a musical instrument that's inside of your body. So understanding the shape of things and the anatomy is how you actually get to know, you know, what are the contours of this thing and how can I actually utilize it to uh, share something? Yeah, we did an episode with Mac DeMarco and an acoustician, and he was saying that every part of the body has a corresponding resonant frequency, like even the shoulder, <laughs> like your shoulder has a resonant frequency. And, and that's why companies will tune speakers to hit you in the chest. And just like in the world of acoustics, one of the most uh, exciting classes I ever took as an undergrad was in sound science. And you learn a lot about how acoustics actually happen and what it means to make sound inside of an enclosed space. So whether that's a mm. room or whether that's um, an instrument like a flute or a tube. And um, you learn that your your voice is essentially a wind instrument and you're trying to feel where that tube is and you're trying to accommodate it so that it can resonate in its most healthy state. So you don't want that tube to collapse. And you also don't want to overdrive that tube. So breathing becomes a very important aspect of um, how singing works, of course. And a lot of people, I think, have the misconception that when you sing a lot or sing loud, you're blowing out a lot of air. And that's actually not the case. Um, at a party once, someone asked me, you know, can you blow out this candle by singing really forcefully? And I said, no, actually, if I'm doing this well, the candle should stay lit, even if it's a few inches in front of my face because what's actually making the sound is not the air but actually the the focus resonance of different chambers of the body so a lot of air isn't coming through the mouth actually right okay well thank you yeah i mean i would encourage our listeners to find clips of devon if you're not in a city where he's performing because your your technique and the sound of your voice is astoundingly good thank you but we're here today to talk about the black clown and there's so much to discuss surrounding it. So perhaps it'd be helpful if we could start by getting some background from you about the poem itself. The black clown was a collaboration between myself and composer Mike Schachter. We kind of found that poem in the middle of us trying to uh, settle in on a project that we were both really passionate about. You know, I was singing music in, in a lot of gig contexts, you know, singing music because you have to earn money and it's really a blessing to be able to do that. But, you know, and as a younger singer, I thought I would really enjoy this more if I was actually singing something I, I deeply connected to. Um, and I mean that in terms of the the actual story or the material and also in terms of the aesthetics, you know, what are parts of my actual culture and heritage um, can I draw on to deliver texts and stories that I actually care about? So that sent us on kind of a, a deep dive into various poetry and text and um, especially Langston Hughes. I've liked Langston Hughes since I was in elementary school. I actually won a volume of his poetry by reciting a poem, The Colossus, which is the inscription at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. But um, I'd had his poetry for a long time and digging deeper into his kind of full works, we found this really lesser known poem called The Black Clown. It really isn't a part of the general canon or at least hadn't been until we made the show. And reading that poem was really a revelation. It really was an awakening of sorts because Hughes so brilliantly and succinctly puts together the entire narrative of Black people in America in just 240 words or so. You know, mm. he walks through the entire scope of what is the Middle Passage and how is that translated through an entire history of persistence against oppression? And these are things that I think as a Black person you feel, but in a certain sense, it's important to contextualize it within a larger arc of history. I'm currently rereading Malcolm X's autobiography as preparation for singing the role of Malcolm X at Michigan Opera Theater. And it's a really fascinating thing to kind of relive his journey of his own awakening, you know, in the midst of prison, how education actually led to his own, you know, self-actualization and empowerment. So the Black Clown for me in a very succinct way was that kind of awakening or educational contextualization. So I thought it was really critical to uh, bring this story to people because it was what I thought I needed to say the most at the time. You know, if there was anything I could utilize my platform
form for it was to speak a story that gives larger context to um so much of what i've personally dealt with and also my entire family backed through generations so i thought you know how do we pump this poem out to as many people as possible with as much energy as possible and that meant that the poem and the show took the form of kind of a vaudeville broadway-esque musical meaning there's a lot of spectacle there's a lot of um ways to draw people into you know a story but then it's a dark story so you always have the opportunity to say to be alluring and say you know look at these incredible people dancing and singing but actually here is their broader context you know it's built on 300 years at least in, in Hughes, at Hughes's time of, of oppression and also kind of tracking different versions of civil rights movements from his time and then backward uh yeah it, it really is you know such a rich text and really um a, an incredible opportunity to be able to share that with a broader audience yeah and and you guys did it so well i I mean, so it was written in 1931. Here we are nearly 100 years later. Was there a particular stanza that was that grabbed you more than others when you first read it? No, <laughs> the entire thing yeah. um, is, is amazing. And I, I don't mean to, you know, be hyperbolic or overstating, but really with the deafness of about 240 words, he really outlays an entire history. And you might think that it might be reductive, but in the you know true potential and essence of poetry, he really is able to, in a nuanced and clear way, get at what this larger scaffolding is. So the entire thing is important, every single bit. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that struck me when I saw the performance was you had such an economy of words to deal with, you know, whatever, how many words did you say it was? Two, 240. 240 wow. words, and then you've got to turn that into a 70-minute performance, mm -hmm. adapting to music and stage. So what what is that process like of deciding which which phrases get repeated and how long and... Totally. So um, Mike and I kind of took the idea from oratorio, which is mm. kind of like opera. It's more like concert opera. And it usually is used to tell sometimes biblical stories or stories of a certain, I guess, scale or sanctity. And mm. what happens in that is there's only a few words of text and they're really drawn out over a long period of time. Like Bach, for instance, you might say the words quia fecit mihi mania, which means because he has done great things for me um, for eight minutes. And that's all mm. you're saying. All right. And yeah. um, the whole point there is, um, well, th I mean, there's a few different facets, but two of the most interesting ones are are, one, if you say something over and over again, you're really going to drive the point home. And also, in saying it so many times, you have the opportunity to explore different ways of saying it, different angles, different things you want to bring out. You know, mm -hmm. what can you invite an audience to if they're really made to hold a simple statement for a prolonged amount of time? Mm -hmm. So that's what mm -hmm. we had as our kind of uh, impetus. Yeah. That actually, it makes me think about there's a tradition, I think, in the church that they've they made the point when you're singing to to always repeat, always drive it home. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to see this. And there are some staggering visual moments in the production that I wanted to talk about, a couple of which you can see online. So I'd, I'd like to direct our listeners to seek those out. There's this kind of ominous but jubilant scene with a giant Abe Lincoln on stilts, <laughs> you know, and the accompanying lines from, from the poem are, freedom, Abe Lincoln done set me free, one little moment to dance with glee. So it's, it's just referring to that brief moment before Jim Crow. Um, could you talk a little bit about that scene and that stanza? Definitely. In the, in the scope of the poem, it's the first very specific event that Hughes talks to, and he actually names Abe Lincoln. And really interestingly, it's the only time in the play that he, or sorry, the only time in the in the poem that he uses vernacular. He says, Abe Lincoln done set me free. And, you know, a, a poet very uh, judicious with words chooses to speak in a way that is kind of playful or making fun 
of the idea of, you know, what is the actual gravity of the Emancipation Proclamation. So mm-hmm. Hughes makes a bit of a joke. So we decided to make a bit of a joke out of it as well when we put it on stage. And it just kind of hit like lightning, you know, Abe Lincoln on stilts, a joke of an Abe Lincoln, you know, this idea of of a liberator coming from on high and, just, and uh, delivering this document that's supposed to change everything. But um, mm-hmm. as you see, it's just kind of the entree to a whole new chapter. And the most gripping scene for me is... Uh, the one that depicts the line, yet clinging to the ladder, mm-hmm. round by round, trying to climb up, forever pushed down. And I hope you'll forgive me for including this spoiler, but you've got a, a, a just ladder descending, and it, and then you get on the ladder and you're climbing, but it's you know, and it continues to descend, so you're you're staying in place. Also, what was interesting to me is that you sing that line before that scene happens, right? Mm-hmm. kind of foreshadow it. I'm interested in the technical aspects of putting that together. Do you remember why you guys decided to not have you say that line while you're on the ladder rather to do it later? Yeah, it's kind of the point in the poem, you know, if we talked about a turning point earlier with the Abe Lincoln, this is kind of the the golden mean turning point where all of the history that this character has walked through kind of comes to a head you know, he says, no matter what I do, I'm always going to be pushed down. And at that kind of low and pressured point, the character then has to have some sort of resolution to accept mm. what's going on or to act against it, you know, under the real and focused pressure. And so turning that into a stage moment was really about demonstrating what that might feel like physically. You know, in theater, we have a really awesome opportunity to show things. And so, yes, we say it, but then we walk through kind of the rest of the text, which is laugh at me, I'm only a clown. And just this uh, this character's resignation as he tries to climb a ladder that continues to descend. And that was um, the genius of our designers, Carlos Soto and John Torres, who are absolutely amazing. They created a ladder made out of light, essentially. Oh, you know? yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. It's a steel, a steel frame ladder that's covered in very specifically made LEDs. And it, it looks very simple, like a pencil drawing, but it's strong enough for me to <laughs> climb yeah. up it and not uh, not fall off and die. Wow. <laughs> but then also the amazing thing of it is there's a trap door in the stage right under the ladder. So as I climb up, there's a technician under the stage holding all of my body weight and countering as I climb so that it seems like, you know, with every effort that I give, the ladder continues to be uh deleted essentially you know and uh, that symbol yeah it, it it is very powerful because it sums up what it might feel like to exist in part of in that longer train of of history and one striking moment in our development of the piece mike and i were at the Beinecke Library at Yale, which is actually a place that holds one of the original handwritten manuscripts of the poem. And that was the same weekend that the movie Get Out opened. And so we went to go see the movie Get Out, which was, you know, absolutely incredible and quite its own revelation. And there's this very, of course, important scene where um, the main character goes into the sunken place and he's shown falling backwards through a black void. And, you know, I had a lot of emotional reaction in that movie, but I cried at that scene because I was so happy to see that Jordan Peele was able to, you know, incarnate that image or that feeling. And we had been wrestling ourselves of how do you show this, you know, place of desperation, this place of trappedness. And as, as you might see, you know, our scene is is very similar in a way. Someone yeah. is climbing a ladder and falling into a black void. And it was just incredible to see that we had come up with those images independently. It was very inspiring. And you, you, you mentioned the, the poem's beginning that talks about being a clown or how you're perceived as one. And I've heard you talk a lot about this dynamic between you and the mostly white audiences in front of whom you're often performing. And, and the first lines of that poem deal with that relationship in a sense, I think. So, I mean, could I ask you to talk about what your experience is like being a black performer in, in front of mostly white audiences? Definitely. Um, so the poem starts with the words, you laugh because I'm poor, black and funny, not the same as you. And 
what struck me, you know, at this point, 10 years ago about those words is it's very directly calling out uh, the situation or a context that a person um, of minority identity might be in saying, you know, you perhaps denigrate my existence because you kind of disrespect or devalue all the aspects of my identity. So he calls that out straight off from the beginning. And it's always been a tenet of mine to want to be very cognizant and present with the context in which I exist. And that continues on to the concert stage. You know, I think it's a loss of human engagement if people stand in a concert space and actually divorce themselves from the reality that they're uh, thrust into. So if I'm standing on a stage in front of an orchestra that's 98% white in front of an audience that's, you know, some high percentage white as well, I'm not going to shy away from that. And I'm not going to, you know, devalue the reality that there is a difference or there is a juxtaposition of my identity against the majority identity in that space. So why would I communicate anything that was irrespective of that truth? I came across this quote from you that really sums that up when you're talking about that opening line that you just recited, which is almost kind of like a provocation in a way with a mostly white audience. And you said uh, it develops a tension and you say from that tension, there's a connection. And from that connection, we can have a bridge to a story of sharing experience. And once we share an experience, we can perhaps look at each other with a little more empathy. I don't think I'd ever heard it put that way, you know, where you can have the tension and the tension can lead to a shared experience. Completely. I mean, change only happens through friction and you have to be able to name a problem before you can solve it. So Hughes does that straight off the bat and now we've got to deal with it for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, to that end, let's get into it with Todd. And now let me say there's so many intersections with what both of you guys do professionally. Perhaps the most unifying to me are a couple things that both you guys have said that bear repeating. So forgive me for all of the reading from me, but here you go. Devon, you said, uh, it was in a, a Lincoln Center podcast, you said, this poem has shown me that it is critical that people engage each other in the context of their entire history. I deeply believe that one of the only ways that we can end racism and move towards a better society is for people to have an acknowledgement of and an understanding of an appreciation of the ancestral history and the psychological context from which black people come. And then if I turn to something I've read from Todd, Todd, in your description of what you do, you say, I produce insights that protect and empower minority voters. Black equality cannot be achieved until voter suppression and gerrymandering are addressed. My professional interest is in the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. So with that, let me start by asking you, Todd, could you break down the different components of what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, before that, Matt, do you want to ask me about my voice? Uh, I, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I've been patiently waiting for you to ask me about how I do what I do. Uh, you know, what's interesting about and what excites me about my space is it's really inter interdisciplinary. You know, everything, all the work that I do right now, at least in data science, is under the umbrella or within the context of the Voting Rights Act uh, of 1965, which is, you know, arguably the most successful civil rights law uh, in our country's history, certainly in the, uh, the most successful in the 20th century. And that law is structured to facilitate opportunities for historically disadvantaged communities. The, you know, the more I work with this law and learn about it, it's just incredibly complex. The first thing that a lawyer needs to do in order to bring a Voting Rights Act case to, uh, to court is to perform um, what, what's called in the law as racially polarized voting analysis. It's just like it sounds, you know, but, but the judge is really looking for some very specific statistical signatures across the history of the jurisdiction in question. And so that's one of the things that I do is I perform that, that analysis. And once we satisfy that requirement, hopefully the judge is, is okay with it. Then the discussion moves to other things like, you know, can we produce a better districting plan that facilitates the type of opportunities that we're, we're getting into. And the type of analytics 
that that transitions into is it's geospatial, but you can also interpret it as graphs. And graphs are kind of a, a computer science data structure that, you know, are very portable. And so we, we manipulate graphs as well. Could I ask you to define racially polarized voting? Sure. So, so there's actually a very specific law in which this is defined. Uh, the case is, if the readers want to look it up, it's called Thornburg v. Jingles. I believe it, it was in 1986. And there's really three components to racially polarized voting. The first one is, is the protected class, as they call minorities, is the protected class uh, geographically compact? So, you, you know, are they geographically compact and are they actually a sizable, are they sizable enough to actually influence election? So, you know, there might be some Alaskan indigenous folks in an area like in Houston or something. Well, there might be, you know, a couple hundred, but they're not enough to maybe sway an election. So they, ha they have to be big enough. The second component is, is this group politically cohesive? You know, that, that's pretty open-ended. There's a lot of different ways that you could argue that or interpret it. But ultimately, the judge wants to know, is everybody kind of on the same page as to what outcomes they're looking for? And then the last one is, is there a history of white voters banding together to basically prevent the candidate of choice of black voters from winning an election? And so a lot of what I do is try and, you know, surface those three themes and, you know, tell a story uh, ultimately about how voting is racially polarized. And I'll just note that it's 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 sad that it's 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 not hard to to demonstrate these things. We're just extremely polarized as a country, and so anyway, that's really the meat of of racially polarized voting. Okay. So, what it is that you do, and in the work that you had done with the metric geometry gerrymandering group, or MGGG as it's known, is you are working to analyze and define what makes a voting district shape fair or not fair in its simplest terms. Is that fair to say, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. All the things that you were, you were listing in your definition of racially polarized voting, those are, in a sense, variables among many that a court would consider, like whether or not districts lay contiguously in the state. And, or you know what? Can you tell us about the origin of the word gerrymander? Sure. So it was actually the first, I think it was in the late 19th century that it was in Massachusetts, actually, where there was a legislator, I think his last name was Jerry. You know, he, he created this crazy looking shape that, you know, became the coinage for any districting plan where you look at it and you're like, okay, why is it snaking around and doing all of these different things? What, what are you guys trying to do, really? So that started, it's, it's been around for a long time. And that mander, because it looked like a salamander, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so thank you for that. So among these things that we're talking about, these variables that are considered, you have blocks of a group of people, and but then you also have like its appearance is a shape. But as I understand it, it's not like you can just make neat squares and rectangles. Those two have unfair consequences, right? So I realize that you're not coming at it from the math angle, but could you please explain some of the basic mathematical concepts that you guys apply? Yeah, but I, I do want to make a, a really important connection to one theme that Devon has so beautifully uh, articulated. Every districting plan, you have to look at the context of the community. You know, when you look at Maryland, for example, the shape of Maryland, the metrics that you want to call that are quote unquote fair in Maryland, you can't use those metrics in California because it's a different shape, different communities at play. And literally every districting plan, you know, what's good for that one might not be good for another one. And in the particular case of, you know, black electoral opportunities, there was a series of cases in North Carolina called Shaw v. Reno that it literally went back to the Supreme Court, I think, five times or something like that. 
And what was in question was a district that they drew in North Carolina from Charlotte to one of the other, you know, major kind of black population centers. And it was right down this highway. I think it was like Highway 12 or, or, or something like that. But it was District 12. And the joke was that if you drove, you know, from one end of the district to the other with both of your car doors open, you'd kill everybody in the district because it was so skinny. <laughs> People looked at that and they were like, what are you guys doing? Like that, that's not even a reasonable shape. And the argument from the civil rights side was, you know, that was the only shape that made sense to facilitate opportunities for black candidates. And so, you know, you can't draw that district anywhere. There has to be a reason why it looks that way. About the math, you know, really at the heart of racially polarized voting is, you know, we're using a technique called ecological inference, which is a special form of inference. And why is it special? Well, because in this space, often when we think about data, we think about, you know, the individual level data that we produce. Like if I log into Gmail, Google has a record of me logging into Gmail. But Mm -hmm. Google really doesn't care about me or you logging into Gmail. What they do with that data is they aggregate it. So they'll say, okay, you know, however many people logged into Gmail today. And when you aggregate data, you actually, it's necessary for us to function in a world to aggregate data. But when you aggregate it, you lose some of the information in it. I'll give you another example. Mm. You know, we're all on a podcast, us three guys. Uh, If I were to say, you know, the combined earned income of this podcast is 200,000. Does that mean that each one of us makes around 70K? Or does it mean that, uh, you know, Matt, you're killing it. And me and Devon are, you know, just trying to, you know, (laughs) grind by. Uh, And, you know, that... That uncertainty of, you know, because it's an aggregated value, you have to be able to figure out at an instance level or a person level, you know, how many black people voted for Joe Biden, for example. So, you know, often we're looking at precincts, which are about a thousand, a thousand voters. And there's maybe 500 votes in a good election. And there's 80 percent black folks you're really trying to characterize with a high, with as high as as much uh, confidence as you can, you know what percentage of black voters supported their candidate of choice, and what percentage of white voters, often it's white voters, um, you know supported theirs. A few years ago, I went to a math and democracy seminar at NYU, and it was a colleague of Todd's named Justin Solomon from MIT. It was brilliant. I probably was able to ingest 5% of what he said. <laughs> it was so heady. One of the main things he was talking about, and I was wondering if, if Todd, you might be able to help break this down for me, but it was just like, I could be totally butchering this, but it's like one of the things that you evaluate when you're trying to figure out whether or not a shape is fair is like the number of different paths that you can walk around a space. Is that right? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think you're butchering it, Matt. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the popular concepts that people are using to evaluate maps is called cut edges. And one way to think about cut edges is like if you have a pair of scissors, how many times do you have to manipulate the direction of the scissors in order to create the shape that you're trying to create? That's insane. Yeah. And, and so... When, when you see, you know, a district with high cut edges, that's going to raise some eyebrows because you're trying to remove certain people and include others in order to arrive at, you know, a constituency that meets certain statistical targets. What's interesting about this space is, you know, there's, there's probably a dozen different back of the envelope type calculations that people do. Uh, in order to make arguments mm-hmm. for or against a plan. And um, none of them have really stuck. I mean, cut edges is, you know, judges are kind of uh, looking at that and feeling comfortable with it. But I was listening to your colleague and the MGGG founder, um, Moon Duchin, a geometer mathematician, and she was on a great podcast called The Joy of X, which is a science podcast. She talks about how this is not 
something that can be optimized. There's no silver bullet. So this cut edge thing, that's not going to be it. So if that's the case, what is the objective? If it's not like a mathematician can come and say, this shape is fair, this shape is unfair. What are you guys trying to achieve if there is no single unifying answer? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm biased because I'm coming from a civil rights angle, but, you know, any plan that doesn't take into consideration opportunities to, for black people to elect their candidate of choice. And, and, and I, I want to be very precise here. I'm not saying that black people have to win every election. I'm saying that a districting plan needs to be structured in, in a way that, you know, we have a shot. That's not the case in a lot of places. I would put that at the top. Other folks, rightfully so, might have more of a kind of Democrat-Republican orientation where they you know, want to balance the party concerns. So that's kind of an open question. You know, What are you trying to kind of achieve through a plan? Well, if I may take another shot at butchering something, let me just say that I feel as though, I think the point is, is you're letting go of the result. You're actually pursuing a deeper, more granular conversation about what it is going on to kind of help these truths bubble up. Right, right. You know, on that same podcast, I've listened to that one and, and Moon made some really interesting points. Often what we'll do is when we look at a plan that like, like Texas's plan right now, which is just egregious, you know, we'll look at that plan and what we'll do from a math perspective is we'll run a simulation. And basically mm -hmm. with that simulation, we're trying to basically draw boundaries around what's mathematically possible. What, what are all the possible ways that this district can be drawn? At the end of that, we produce what's called an ensemble, which is just a bunch of these maps that we've generated from simulation. And then we basically plot, you know, where the, the plan in question is along this distribution that the ensemble generates. And I suspect mm -hmm. with uh, Texas. Excuse me, a distribution is, is that mean like a bell curve? Or? Right, exactly. So the whole name of the game is to try and demonstrate that that plan is, is on the tail end of the things. Like you're, you're using randomness and probability to demonstrate that what they did was not probable, right? Right. So, right. Because we want to go for the fat part of the bell. Right. I'm curious when you, when you come to the conclusions of what they did being not probable, in order to say they did that and it is not right, then you're maybe positing that they had intentions that are counter to something equitable. So how is that discourse, you know, handled? How do you call somebody out for propagating inequity and continue to have a productive conversation? Mm. Well, this ties into, again, context. What people who are putting these plans forward are doing to this day, right now, and what they've been doing is saying, hey, we're doing race blind. We're not even looking at race numbers. We're drawing what makes sense based on some other priorities. And first of all, yes, they are looking at race numbers. That's why we have a Voting Rights Act. You can't say that, you know, oh, we weren't thinking about opportunities for black people. No, actually, there's a federal law that's in place to facilitate this process. So they'll often say, Devon, you know, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Race wasn't even a thing until you brought it up. And I'll note the other thing. There was a Supreme Court opinion. I think it came out in, in 2018 or 2019 called Rucho v. Common Cause. And by the way, Matt, Moon was very much involved in, in that. It came out of North Carolina and Moon's done a lot of work in North Carolina. But yeah. that case, the outcome was such that Supreme Court said, we're not going to get involved with partisan gerrymandering motivations. So if, if a legislature says that we were just trying to gerrymander, not based on race, but based on party, we were just trying to eliminate Democrats and create you know, more opportunities for Republicans, the court said that that's fine. And so what we, we, we know how race and party are strongly correlated, um, mm -hmm. you know, legislatures are just hiding behind the partisan defense, even when we know that there's probably strong racial motivation behind what they're doing as well. And another thing I'd, I want to reference that podcast again, the joy of X, uh, the, the host says to 
to Moon, he says, isn't isn't fighting gerrymandering with science just code for let's help the Democrats win? <laughs> um, you know, is this truly objective? And she points out a couple instances where that's not the case. Um, you know, and because at Todd, I appreciate you saying that you're biased and we were all biased, obviously. But I want to add that there's this this idea that the Democrats are the party of science, and that's not always the case, and nor should it be. You know, I mean, science is a process that should be available to everybody. So if there's anything that you can do to amplify that point, Todd, I think it would help the cause. <laughs> well, I'll say that w one of the really interesting things that I've learned doing gerrymandering is, I, you know, frankly, the Republicans are, are pretty damn bad, but, yeah. you know, the Democrats uh, do not have clean hands. You know, we'll look at like Illinois right now, for example, you know, that's a Democratic state that's uh, being sued for, you know, not facilitating, adequately facilitating opportunities for communities of color. Massachusetts, not many people know this, but Massachusetts has had some Voting Rights Act violations. And, you know, the southern states were largely the target of uh, Voting Rights Act, some of the different policies under that. But, you know, Brooklyn had some Voting Rights Act issues when it comes to like language minorities. So it's definitely, um, there's definitely plenty of blame to go around. Yeah. You said sometimes you get the response that people weren't considering race or they haven't considered it until you brought it up. And that's the same kind of inspiration that I have for, you know, bringing up race within the context that I exist because a lot of times people are like, oh, is your work political? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to be honest about my identity and in, in not, you know, calling on the construction of racial identity in the places I exist is an erasure of it. So it's it, I don't think it's a political act just to be, you know, honestly interrogative about how you exist in the world. But Todd, it's it's really interesting that what you do is kind of some cross melding between how do you phenomenologically construct an identity and then represent it legally or statistically or mathematically? It's really fascinating because like that's a highly subjective thing that you're trying to objectify. Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that it's it's subjective. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. that race is very much codified into the law in a way that we might not even be fully appreciative of. And so when we think about redistricting, it's it's funny that legislatures say they're not looking at race data. Literally, the census gives you that the, the data that you get to do redistricting is, is basically how many races live in any given political unit. That's what the data you're using is. So of course, you're looking at race. And it is hard to phenomenologically characterize these things because what I was talking about earlier about aggregate data, we all can kind of look at any given statistic, whether it be wealth or health outcomes, and know that black people are struggling. But to precisely say that we know how many people got locked up last year, but we don't know how many came from our neighborhood, to get to that level of precision is very difficult given the data that we have. And so you've got to get creative and kind of reframe the problem. I mentioned graphs. You know, the computing power today is such that we can implement algorithms that we couldn't implement as recently as 10 years ago. And that opens up a lot of opportunities to tell new stories. Wow. Talking about computing power, Moon was saying that I, there was some case she was involved in with Pennsylvania. I forget what it was, but it was like having to chop up a a pretty small number of districts, like I don't know if what it is and it's like 12 or 16. And when you're like looking at all the possible outcomes of how you can do that, it was actually a number that is greater than our ability to comprehend, you know? Right, right, um, right. That something I've always wanted to know, has there ever been like a smoking gun, like a, a memo circulated among lawmakers just saying like, hey, we got to draw this so that we can suppress the minority vote. And if there were, would that make a difference? <laughs> well, 
recently, I mean, I'm sure there are examples in some of the deep South states where emails came up, but this has been quite explicit for since, since that moment uh, where Abe Lincoln mm-hmm. was on stilts, right? <laughs> 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 Ever since then, they've been extremely sp- explicit about mm-hmm. what they're trying to do. There's no sugarcoating it. And you have to ask, like when you see these outcomes in all these different lawsuits, why, why isn't there a federal statute to govern that? Mm. You know, that, that's, that's a rhetorical question. It's a compromise that the powers that be have made that they don't want to uh, get in the way of jurisdictions that want to throw up these roadblocks. Could I ask you to just tell us a little bit about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of, of 65 and also that, that case from the 80s, the landmark case, the Thornburg case? Yeah, so Section 2 is actually very important in this moment in time because it's really the only tool that voting rights, civil rights lawyers have at the moment to really to attack and to defend. I mentioned Section 2 because in 2013, Section 5, we can get into that, but basically that was a really important tool to prevent offenses before they happened. So Section 2, it really prevents two things. It prevents vote denial. So if you're you know, unreasonably kicked off the voting roll, you're protected by Section 2. And then vote dilution, which is really where I spend a lot of my time. That's really getting into the different constitutions or, or constituencies of districting plans and making sure that, you know, everyone's has a fair shot, you know, to, to win. And you get to that by looking at, looking through history, looking through interesting elections and doing that racially polarized voting analysis we talked about in order to really try and characterize the voting behavior in a way that surfaces some of the potential issues that could come up. Thornburg v. Jingles is really kind of the, it's a case law. It's a, a case that was decided under the Voting Rights Act. What's interesting about that opinion, a lot of judges, you know, even to this day, when it comes to like race and really politically sensitive questions, they're not going to write a lot down. They don't really get into it, particularly the Supreme Court right now. They just don't want to do anything with race. When you read the opinion of Thornburg v. Jengles, it's very detailed, very prescriptive. Justice Brennan is the one who wrote that, and, and uh, he was a, just a great, great legal mind. That's an incredibly important case that, that comes up every day in my work. Can you just quickly summarize what happened in that case? So I think that one came out of North Carolina, too. North Carolina's had a lot of cases, but really the three prongs of the racially mm-hmm. polarized voting that we talked about is the group concentrated and large enough to influence an election. Are they politically cohesive? meaning, you know, up to 80, 90 percent of them are, are really getting behind one candidate. Are, are white voters acting as a block to prevent, you know, minority candidates from electing their candidate of choice? Those are the three, those are the three boxes you have to check in order to actually get in the courtroom. And I'll note that some of the more interesting elections aren't general elections. They're actually primary elections. And there's this, this concept of probative value, meaning there's just a lot of interesting things going on in this particular election. The most probative races are when uh, a white candidate is running against a black candidate. And often they're in primaries where you can really see the polarization between between the two races. So that's kind of what I I do is just uh, look at a lot of election data. So I'm sitting right now in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's where uh, my brothers lived for 11 years, and I just started living here about a year ago. And he works for Common Cause, so a national oh, organization wow. yeah, yeah, that yeah, deals yeah, yeah. in voter access and good governance. Um, and he particularly works for their HBCU program. And so I've been learning about you know gerrymandering and North Carolina's you know unique, specific history with that through him. And... It's been interesting just getting to know each other's lines of work um, and what's parallel and not. But um, one interesting thing that we found was, you know, I asked, like, what is the most useful thing to get people to understand what you're talking about? And he says that storytelling, the emotional appeal. Mm. 
And, Mm -hmm. and that's something I'm always trying to think about, you know, when creating and when working, how can this story be in service of this work, you know, Todd, your kind of work that actually is putting down and writing the sort of things that allow people to, you know, make change and have access. So what is the hardest thing for you to get people to understand? Math. (laughs) I I think um, that's an excellent question because, and I love the concept of storytelling because the hardest part about data science isn't actually doing the data science. It's getting what's in your head into someone else's head and communicating Mm -hmm. clearly in a way that is digestible and they don't have to do a lot of effort to kind of connect the dots of what you're trying to say. I work with lawyers who, you know, some of them know a bit of the math, but they're they're approaching this from a legal perspective. I don't know their world and they really don't know mine. And so it's really on me to translate statistics into legal concepts and finding a way to communicate these super nuanced things. You know, law is extremely nuanced. Statistics has its subtleties. How do you connect those dots what does it mean for a group to be cohesive? Does it mean 80%? Does it mean 90%? And because there's often a lot of ambiguity, even in the statistical results, you have to kind of zoom out and figure out a way to kind of synthesize all these different facts. And again, like just tell a story. Yeah. Hmm. Well, guys, this, is, this has been so great. I, I really appreciate your time and you coming together for this. Really admire both of you. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having us. Stay up to date with Todd's work with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund on his LinkedIn page, Todd Hendricks. And see Devon perform this May with the Detroit Opera in Anthony Davis's Opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Otavio Media and Bailey Constas, and pressed by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Thing New York for their help with today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. Thank you.